You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Paul says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things... The wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. I'd like to pause and pray over God's word. Father, Father, these verses can have a tendency to be a heavy word. I know that even for me, there, there was much fear this week, and even into the late hours of last night, even into this morning, just a fear, I think, I think a holy fear of your word and uh, a sense even for me of am I qualified to preach this word? And yet you are the qualifier of the unqualified. So God, in these moments, please help me to preach the truth of your word faithfully and let your spirit come and unleash the fury of the love of Christ on us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> All right, so I've entitled this message, A Fragrant Offering. I've entitled it that way because verse one of our text tells us that Christ loved us, right? He loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now this reminder should be something that is pleasing for the Christian to hear. Should please us when we hear this about Christ, that he would give himself up for us, a fragrant offering, should please us, should please our senses. Now, there are many things in the world that are pleasing to our senses, right? God created us as sensory beings, not robots. We have senses. He gave us a sense of smell and the sense of sight and the sense of hearing and the sense of taste and a sense of feeling. And listen, when something smells good, right? Think about something that smells really good. When something smells good or looks good or sounds good or tastes good or feels good, if all of those senses are pleasing all at the same time, what happens? We become intoxicated. That's what happens. If you just please two or three of all of our senses, you can become intoxicated. But if you, if you please all of them at one moment, you and I, we become intoxicated. This is called sensory overload, right? So that's called sensory overload. Every sense loaded with what appears to be good. See, God created us with appetites. Those appetites get stirred up. 
And, and when those appetites get stirred up, our senses get triggered. When those appetites don't get satisfied, then our cravings become more intense. And when our cravings become more intense, we can be assured that there is danger and destruction right around the corner. The world that we live in, honestly, the world that we live in is constantly offering us a platter of things that are designed to overload our senses and that easily lead us into destruction. That's the reality of the world that we live in. And that's the importance of this passage, the importance of this message, is that we need to understand that our senses trigger our appetites, our appetites stir up our cravings, and if our cravings go unchecked, then the consequences will be severe, right? Like in our text, the very first word that you see is the word therefore, and whenever you see the word therefore, you gotta ask, what's that word therefore, right? Just a, it's a common reminder whenever you see that word in Scripture, what's that word there for? In other words, what came before this that will now shed light on what we are currently studying? Now, as we studied last week and over the last few weeks, we saw that the Apostle Paul is concerned with how the Ephesian church is walking out her faith. He knows that the Ephesian church has been planted in one of the most perverse cities of the time. So he's instructed the Ephesians to walk in a manner that is worthy of their calling, right? To no longer walk like unbelievers, to put on the new clothing of Christ like this, to be renewed in their words, their thoughts, and their actions. This has been the grand theme of what came before this word, therefore. In short, Paul wants the Ephesians to be like Jesus. He wants them to be honest instead of deceptive. He wants them to be kind and tender-hearted instead of angry. He wants them to be lovingly forgiving instead of bitter, slanderous, and malicious. That's what he said. And then that's where the word therefore enters into Paul's mind. Almost like a pause in a dialogue, right? Where Paul says, okay, you got that? He's saying, does everything I've said make sense so far? He's saying, okay, good. Now that you know that, in light of all of that, there, there's more that I want you to know. Put these things in your mind too. I want you to walk in love as you imitate God. I want you to fill your walk and your talk with sexual purity. I don't want you to persist in sexual sin. And I don't want you to listen to empty deception. Walk in love as you imitate God. Walk in love as you imitate God. So Paul says in verses 1-2, through two, he says, Be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us, and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now here in this context, the word imitate means to take, or to follow something or someone as a model. Like Think about that word model. It's a take or to follow something or someone as a model, or to copy, or to simulate, or to mimic someone or something. We're called to imitate, right? To follow, to copy, to simulate, to mimic our Heavenly Father. Now, the way that we walk out our lives is to be characterized by true love. And the model that we have for true love looks like the love of Christ as he gives himself away on behalf of his enemies on a cross. That's that reckless piece that we've seen about today. This picture that we have in Christ of what true love looks like is completely contrary 
to what the world we live in holds up as a model. I want you to think for a minute about how saturated you and I have been by the surrounding culture around us and what its version and model of love is. We're completely saturated of it. Now think of the models that you see in the world that we live in. TV programs, magazines, movies, social media. All of these are pop culture models that hold up these models of love that are absolutely contrary to God's design and purpose for what love actually is. I don't know if, sitting here when I say that, I don't know if you and I totally grasp the depth of how bad this is for us. I hope that by the time that we're done, I hope that the Holy Spirit would help us to see it, to wake up to how bad this is for us and how deeply infected every one of us in this room is no matter how holy you and I think we are. And our pop culture has turned the model of love into a scantily clad sexual object that promises to be everything you ever craved. Our culture has turned love into a feeling that demands immediate gratification rather than an act of personal sacrifice for the benefit of others. Just think about that one sentence and how bad that's affected you. Our culture tempts our senses every day with promises of personal satisfaction that actually shapes us. That, that promise of personal satisfaction shapes us every day and it shapes us into takers rather than givers. But in the church, we spice it up with religious talk. Think about how your pursuit of satisfying your cravings every day shapes you, shapes your heart, shapes your mind, shapes your behavior. Unless you think that it's different for us now than it was for the Ephesians, it wasn't. That's why Paul instructs them to walk in love as they imitate God. The Ephesian culture was full of sexual perversion. Okay, We don't have the corner on the market on X-rated stuff. The Ephesian culture was steeped in this. According to one author, ritual prostitution was a way of life and one of the top-selling industries in that city. Okay? Top-selling industries. Put that in your mind and remember that I said that. Like the top-selling industry in that community, in Ephesus, of that time, ritual prostitution was the way of life. The dominant religion in Ephesus of that time was like a pagan religion that literally in sexualized ways worshipped a, a multi-breasted naked goddess named Diana. Temple prostitution was tied to that. Th th this, this is what the Ephesian church was being planted. The people that were saved in that church were being saved out of that kind of sick love. Okay, So lest you think that maybe we're worse than them, think about that. Lest you think that we're better than them, think about that. It would be a struggle to see victory and transformation in this area of growth in the Ephesian church. Why do I say that? Why do I say this would be a struggle for them to grow in? Why do I say that sexual perversion would be a struggle? It's not just a, oh, duh. I want you to really think about it. I'm not asking that question to let you pass by it quickly. I want you to really think about this. Why? 
I say this because the scriptures make it clear that sexual sin is not only a sin against our brothers and sisters, not only a sin against our Father in heaven, but it's also a sin against ourselves, something that we, we sin inside of ourselves. Sexual sin is a sin that runs so deep in the, in the physical and the spiritual psyche of a human that most doctors and psychologists today, when they write books about this, they will say that it's worse than trying to overcome a heroin addiction. The reason why is because sexual sin affects every sense, whereas heroin does not. Think about that. When we sin sexually, every sense that we're designed with becomes overloaded with pleasure to a point that even a heroin addiction would be easier to overcome. And Paul combats this. How's he going to combat this? He doesn't tell him, go take some addiction classes, though that would be a great tool if they had them, right? doesn't tell them that necessarily. What he does is he instructs them to imitate God. Imitate God. Imitate God in the way that you walk. By walking in the true love that was modeled for you in Christ at the cross. A selfless love that gives rather than takes. A true love that seeks the good of others rather than seeking to satisfy our cravings. This is the first thing. Walk in love as you imitate God. Number two, fill your walk and your talk with sexual purity. So you're walking your talk with sexual purity. Paul says, sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. As is proper among the saints, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. See, when, when I hear someone spin a really tall tale that I know isn't true, I, like you, will typically think in my head, if not say it out loud, that person's full of it, right? Like, you are just full of it. I know better. The question at that point is like, what are they full of? Right? They're full of deception? They're full of pride? Full of themselves? And probably all the above, maybe? That's the point of verses 3 and 4. Paul is concerned with, the, with what the Ephesians are full of, and he knows that their walk and their words are proof of what they're full of. Jesus says that from within, out of the heart of man, Come evil thoughts and sexual immorality, Mark 7, 21. See, whatever your heart is full of is what your walk and your talk will be full of. Okay? And Paul says that our hearts, our minds, our walk and our talk should not be full of sexual immorality or impurity or covetousness. And covetousness here means being greedy for another person's body in this context. Typically, the word at baseline means being greedy for anything you don't have. In this context, because it's about sexual sin, it's about being greedy for another person's body that you do not have or should not have or cannot have. It should not be full of filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking. Like those things, Paul says, are not proper for a person who has experienced the true love of Christ. Not, not fitting. They're out of place for a professing Christian. We should fill our walk and our talk with sexual purity. But the question is, what does that look like, right? What does that look like in a world where everything outside of us is saturated with sexual overtones that trigger the senses and awaken the sin that lurks within us, what does it look like for us to fill our entire beings with sexual purity? And the answer is right here in the text when Paul says, but instead, don't, don't, don't be filled with sexual impurity, but instead, what does he say? Let there be thanksgiving. Interesting. Interesting. Like the opposite of thanksgiving is covetousness, right? That's the opposite of thanksgiving. 
The opposite of thanksgiving is covetousness or being greedy for something that we do not have that we desperately crave. So think about the one thing that you have craved the most over this last year. The one thing that you have craved the most that you'd be willing to give anything for. This is the essence of sexual sin. It's being greedy for someone that you do not have that every stinking sense in your body says you must have. It's the opposite of being grateful. It's the opposite of being grateful. And listen, being grateful flows out of a heart that is content, at ease, satisfied in the presence of Christ. In all reality, a sexual sin actually flows out of discontentment. Discontent with the way your body looks. Discontent with singleness. Discontent with loneliness. Discontent with the spouse you have. Discontent with what God has given you. Hungry. Craving what you want God to give you rather than being content and thankful for what God has given you. So fill your walk, fill your talk with sexual purity and the way you'll know that you're doing it is by the thankfulness and the gratefulness that flows out of you. Number three, don't persist in sexual sin. Don't persist in sexual sin. Paul says, you may be sure of this. Everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, catch the is, is in here. What is the meaning of is? That's always a fun conversation. Um, is is our present tense. That's the point for me. Um, everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, everyone who is covetous, covetous, that is an idolater, connecting this concept of greed to idolatry, right? It makes sense because we're greedy for something that we cannot have and do not have. Therefore, I'm going to make that thing that I crave that I don't have into the ultimate thing of my life and God, you take second seat. That's idolatry, right? So that's how they tie together. Uh, this person who is that person has no inheritance in the kingdom of God in Christ. Oh, that's heavy. Heavy, heavy, heavy warning, right? So you might be saying here, you might be saying, man, if, man I, know what, I know what my life was like this last week in this area. Does that mean I don't have an inheritance? I know there's some of you that are thinking that, asking that question. And I, and I refuse to give false assurance, but I also refuse to hang heavy guilt where it doesn't belong. So my, my prayer is that God would bring those two tensions together at a hill named Golgotha where there was a cross and a bloody savior. Yeah. The temptation for us, I think, at this point, for some of us maybe on the other side, is to maybe justify ourselves or try to prove that somehow maybe this text doesn't apply to us, right? You might think like this is uh, only an issue for single people or, or you might think maybe this is only an issue for married people whose marriages are on the rocks. Or maybe, maybe you think this is only an issue for men who struggle with this. I want to remind you that Jesus said that anyone who looks upon another person with lust is guilty of adultery. In this context, lust is the craving for someone that is not your spouse. Men struggle with lust when they look longingly at a woman in the gym Women 
struggle with lust when they look longingly at a male model who has no shirt on. There's only one person who could look upon another person with pornless eyes, and his name is Jesus. Only person. Sexual sin knows no boundaries. No one is safe. Satan is no respecter of persons. Sin is common to us all, and our culture has made it popular to indulge our sexual appetites. For instance, over the years, the entertainment industry has consistently pushed the bar higher and higher, I would actually say lower and lower, on what is acceptable, pure, and good. Popular music on our radio stations Tunes that make us bob our heads, right? Things that stick with us. They bombard us daily with sexual imagery. Every day. Even country music, which used to be some of the quote-unquote cleanest music, (coughs) still has some really sharp sexual overtone to it. Late-night talk shows that you and I might watch turn the things that God has called an abomination into humor. And you know what the first thing the first thing in terms of compromise for us you want to get us to compromise on something that we've held to be true, right, or wrong is to help us laugh about what God has called wrong. So as soon as we start laughing about that, that's the first step of compromise. Kind of the little snicker and the little giggle. The movie industry promotes film franchises that glorify women as sexual objects and prop up weak and cowardly men masquerading as heroes. The Fifty Shades of Grey franchise cost nearly $150 million to produce, and it raked in over $1 billion in profits. $150 million to produce, $1 billion in profits. You might think, man, had to have been a lot of sick guys going to see that movie, right? Those movies have been dubbed as mommy porn. General ticket sales sold to an estimated 82% of women versus 18% of men. Nobody in this room is safe. Over $3,000 per second. Think about the gravity of that stat. $3,000 per second is spent on making pornography or getting it. I weep because I know my own sin in this area. The United States produces 89% of all pornographic websites. That's the country we live in. Heaven help us. It could be your daughter or your wife on that screen. It could be mine. Wouldn't we love each other enough, truly love each other enough, to do anything we can to cut that sin out of our lives? Wouldn't we? Why wouldn't we? Because we're deceived, saturated. It's estimated that pornography users, 30% female, 72% male, 30% of women admit to struggling with lust, porn, and sexual sin. 
The average age of a person being exposed to pornography is 11 years old. No one is safe. Everyone is in danger. No one in this room is, is immune to viewing the world through sexually saturated eyes. This is why Job made a covenant with his eyes to never look upon a woman with lust. This is why Paul said in Philippians 4, 8, Finally, my brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. It's also why Paul says here in Ephesians 5, 5, that you may be sure of this. Everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolatry, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. This is not just a warning to men. It's not just a warning to singles. It's a warning to everyone that if we persist in sexual sin, then the consequences will be severe as we are severed from eternal fellowship with God. Don't hear me say you can lose your salvation. We must do everything we can possibly do to guard our hearts, guard our eyes, guard our ears, guard our friends, guard our families from persisting in sexual sin. But before I get to the, the last point, point four, if, if any of you have had any experience of walking in this sin and have faced the struggle of what this looks like, or if you have walked with someone close to you and you know the pain of this, you know the deep root and the resistance that comes. The stats that I've just pointed out tells us enough about how big of a problem this is in our culture and in our hearts. Many of you sitting in this room, I know have struggled with this, and many of you sitting in this room have walked with a brother or a sister and had that brother or sister walk stupidly forward like they were just totally blind to everything that you said to them and then face the horror and the pain as you've watched that brother or that sister walk off the cliff. And so I hope that in the middle of this, again, that God would speak and that he would bring together the tension of all this at a cross on a hill where our Savior died. My prayer is that the Spirit of the living God would come and to do this morning what I am unable to do. <coughs> Number four, don't listen to empty deception. Paul says, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Do not be deceived, friends. Sexual sin will leave you as empty as the empty words you use to condone your foolishness and your selfishness. I say that to myself and to you. I have no problems using harsh language when it comes to this topic. Simply because this is a serious topic and it should be dealt with. Seriously. The world is full of empty and deceptive promises. My heart loves way too much to listen to those empty and deceitful promises that it makes to me. It loves to believe that I'm tough enough. Loves to believe that I'm holy enough. Loves to believe that I'm smart enough that I could actually downplay the danger of sexual sin and get away with it and be okay tomorrow. And my heart loves to do that. A little glance here. 
Second look there. Funny joke over here. Social media posts looked at for a little too long. It's not that bad, my heart says. It's only a two-piece bikini. It's not full-on porn. Victoria's Secret commercials are only selling undergarments. I don't, I don't need the restraints that other guys need. Guys like me deal with this at a heart level. I don't need to go to the links that other guys do. I don't need the crutches of software. This is a conversation we had this week. This was really good. This really convicted me. I don't need the crutches that other guys need. I don't, I don't need the crutches of software, transparent conversation, or accountability, or restricted internet use. I don't need those things. I'll be fine. I only slipped up a few times last month. I'm getting better. Empty words is what those are. Those are deceptive words. Those are empty promises and deceptive promises, and they're, they're empty and deceptive because of this. They're self-focused on what I can do instead of what I can't do. You see? You see how sly Satan is with his lies? And look at you. You did good for the last few weeks. You don't need to use that kind of crutch anymore. Why would you want yourself to look weak in front of everybody? You're strong. Look at you. That's Satan. It's not Jesus. They're empty and deceptive because they're self-focused, independent words that are devoid of a true, authentic, life-giving confession of sinfulness and helplessness that is required to actually become fully and completely dependent upon God through the use of the good gifts and the tools that he's given to his bride. He loves you if you're his. You're his bride. He married you. He would not want you or I to stay in that place. On account of these empty and deceptive words and promises, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. Don't listen to empty deception. A story in one of my commentaries about a lady who made some homemade cookies and placed them in the cookie jar on the counter in her kitchen. She had a son who was very young. She knew he would be tempted to sneak his hand into that cookie jar and take some cookies before dinner. She knew. So she pulled him aside. She instructed him to stay away from the cookie jar until the time was right. Catch that. Until the time is right. Scriptures are clear. Do not awaken love until the time is right. But the problem is our senses get overloaded. Our culture and the sin inside of us awakens love that is not love. And then we're saturated with that from, for most of us from before the age of 11, according to the stats, right? Follow me? Okay. Sticking our hand in the cookie jar since then. So she warned him, instructed him not to stick his hand in the cookie jar until the time was right. She also warned him about the consequences of his actions. She decided to ignore her warnings. A little while later, she's in the living room. She's folding laundry. She hears the lid on the cookie jar being moved, scraping across. You know, little kids, not good at sneaking around, right? So she calls out to her son, hey, son. What are you doing? Little voice in the kitchen replies back, Oh, mommy, my hand is in the cookie jar resisting temptation. <laughs> huh. My hand is in the cookie jar resisting temptation. 
Now, as funny as that is, the, the truth is no one resists temptation with their hand in the cookie jar. So when a brother or sister is sitting in front of me and they refuse to deal with this head on, I want to look at them and say, you can't resist temptation with your hand in the cookie jar and that's where your hand is at. So the truth is no one resists temptation with their hand in the cookie jar, right? The other truth is that there are open cookie jars all over the place in our culture that we can easily get our hands into if we're not careful, we need to protect ourselves from the cookie jar syndrome that has infected not only the culture outside of us, but it's also infected the church. I don't have time to walk through the stats on what's happening in the church globally and even in America. Sexual sin has saturated the church in a way that is mind-numbing. We need to destroy the cookie jars. If you're not willing to destroy the cookie jars, then you have not caught a glimpse of Christ at that cross for you. And I pray that you get that today. We need to destroy the cookie jars and we need to cut off the hands. As Jesus said something similar to that, if your hand offends you, cut the thing off. If your eye offends you, gouge that thing out. Better for you to go to heaven maimed than to go to hell whole. That's a serious passage that we've got to hear. We need to safeguard our hearts, safeguard our lives. We need to interrogate our hearts. This is an old Puritan uh, practice. Interrogate our hearts with preventative questions, protective reminders. To that end, what I've compiled is four questions that I often ask myself, pass them along to you. The reason I ask myself these kinds of questions is to interrogate and safeguard my heart against the cookie jar syndrome. Number one, who or what does my life imitate? Number two, am I walking with a limp and do I need a crutch? Number three, am I persisting in some kind of sin? Number four, am I listening to empty deception? What, who, or what does my life imitate? See, we were created to be imitations of God, but sin entered the world through Adam and Eve, and then ever since then, all of humanity has struggled to imitate God, especially in this area of sexuality. There, there's a tension to living in this world while not being of it. I must constantly ask myself how my decisions will reflect upon the name of Christ, and if they will bring glory to him or dishonor him. And when it comes to things like entertainment and movies, music, relational interaction, social media, man, I gotta ask whom my life will imitate. Am I imitating God with this decision? Or am I imitating some inner craving that I just have to satisfy? Or am I imitating the world around me with this decision? Who or what does my life imitate? Number two, Am I walking with a limp and do I need a crutch? Am I walking with a limp and do I need a crutch? Popular in our culture to posture ourselves. Being tough. Big and bad, right? Tougher and better than we really are. America, especially here in America, this is a massive portion of our culture. You go to third world countries, I think it's quite a bit different. Haven't been there. Some of you have. I think it's a lot different. I think in some third world countries, they're far more broken than we are because they face brokenness in ways that we haven't. We are absolutely spoiled. And America was founded on this big picture of like toughness, right? Go west, young man. Land to be conquered. That's deep in the American psyche. Rugged individualism can weather storms. So we, we've got this ingrained in us. It's shaped us. But we, we don't like to admit weakness or neediness. Those traits don't seem attractive. They don't attract our senses. Okay? The truth is, 
I am a really broken and weak and needy person. So I oftentimes don't want people to know that. Sin has caused me to walk with a limp. It's the truth. I'm not in heaven yet. And to ignore that limp or to dress up that limp with religious language is to enter the slippery slope of moral decline and spiritual chaos. That's why so many relationships are falling apart today in the church. It's why the stats in the church match the stats of our culture. We dress up ourselves, posture ourselves as looking better than we really are, and we take no actual steps towards following Jesus and being changed. We don't want to look weak. We often view crutches as negative things that hamper our ability. We view them as something less mature people need, right? That's, that's for hurting people. Like a person with a broke knee, they need. A person with arthritis in their knee, they, they need a cane, right? Here's the thing. A, a mature person knows that they need a crutch, and they use it. A mature person knows they're broken, and that they need a stinking crutch, right? An immature person says, I don't need the crutch. And then what happens is if you have somebody that has a busted up knee, and they can't walk straight, and they fall over their place, and they fall on little kids, and they hurt them, right? And they cause themselves more pain. That's the picture. So a more mature person who actually grabs that cane and says, man, I need that. That's maturity for us. I've walked for years trying to figure that one out. So don't, don't feel me beating up on you. Walk for years figuring that one out. mature person knows he needs a crutch and he desperately clings to it for safety and purity. A social media, television programs rated, than high, rated higher than PG-13. This is me. So you know, my confession. Social media. Don't have any of it on my phone. Why? Because the place of weakness, I walk with a limp there. If I get a friend request from some naked woman, it's very hard to not have that image in my head. So I don't have it on my phone. Why? Because I want purity there. I need the crutch. I don't have internet use on my phone. Why? Because it gets me into a habit of constantly checking these little red bubbles. And then when some little red bubble comes across my screen that I shouldn't be looking at, catches my attention because I'm intoxicated by what's happening in front of me, boom, I see something. And, I, and then the rest of the day I'm battling an image. Or worse, I'm clicking on something I shouldn't be clicking on. Right? Right? So this happened years ago. You can ask my wife. She's the only one that has passwords to those things. I can tell you, if I were to come home tomorrow and I were to say, hey, babe, I think I'm doing good enough now. I'd like you to take all of this stuff off my phone. I'd like you to give me my rights back on that thing. And on my computer, I really don't want to have the covenant eyes on there anymore, watching my every move. And you know what she'd say to me? She'd say, you're absolutely full of it. Full of what? Deception. Myself. That's what she'd say. And let me tell you this, if she didn't say that, she wouldn't be loving me. She's like, oh, okay, baby, well, here you go. You can go ahead. I mean, she doesn't talk like that, but I like to talk like that, so. <laughs> she does call me baby, though. But. She wouldn't be loving me. She would not fear the consequences of my anger against her and my disapproval of her. She'd be more concerned about loving me in a very reckless way, right? I thank God for the wife that, that God has given me. Our TVs at home can't get anything past a PG-13 rating. Um, we don't have, we could take it a step further and just do all Christian programming. 
Um, we could do that, and that's good. I know there's a few of you that have that. Um, so we're very careful there. My wife has to put in a code on a movie or a show for me to be able to watch it. Yeah, am I a baby? Yeah, and I'm proud of that. You know why? Because it keeps me pure. Am I, am, I, am I proud of that in a way that I said, I did that? No, because I wouldn't normally do this. You know what I would do is I would push the boundaries, I would play in the gray spaces, I'd pretend like I was better, and I would try to build myself up like I'm stronger than I really am. That's what I would do left to myself, but the Spirit of God has done that work in me over the years. I'm so thankful for him doing that work. The majority of pop music can't listen to it. Magazine aisles don't usually walk down them. Just don't. The gym at certain times of the day can't be there. It's too full of people who are just trying to lose weight and don't want to be looked at. But the reality is, you look at every guy in that gym and you see what he does when a woman walks in. Heads turn. It's ridiculous. We live in that. So there's certain times of the day that I don't go to the gym. Internet accessibility, I talked about that. Those are all areas that I walk with a limp in. And the reason that I'm thankful for those limps is it helps me to yearn for heaven even more. I don't expect perfect to be perfect here. I expect that in heaven. And that's the promise of the scriptures. So are you walking with a limp and do you need a crutch? Number three, am I uh, persisting in some kind of sin? See, when I make a conscious decision to do something that I know has caused me to sin in the past that could lead me to sin in the present, then I am persisting in sin. When I ignore the warnings of danger around me, then I am persisting in sin. When I choose the easiest road to get to what I crave, then I am persisting in sin. We often think of sin, really, as the final act of something that is clearly black and white sin. We fail to recognize is the many small decisions of compromise that we make along the way. Just like a little child who wants his cookies before dinner, my heart will search for, will scream out for, smaller, seemingly safer decisions that will satisfy my cravings. See, persistence in sin looks like a child who has been told no, but keeps pressing the issue from every possible angle that they can to get where he or she craves so much. That's my heart. That's your heart too, whether you know it or not. Number four, am I listening to empty deception? See, the person that you and I listen to the most is ourselves. We have discussions in our heads 24 hours a day. The greatest pulpit that you have is in your brain, in your heart. I wouldn't say it's the best, just saying it's the biggest one. You hear more sermons happening in your head all day long, making promises, telling you it's not good enough. See, what happens is, in our heads, we exploit gray spaces. Well, that's not really black and white there. Justify our behaviors. Downplay little indiscretions. Ignore the warning signs. We position ourselves in places of least resistance. Here's a fun one. We argue over the blurry lines of Christian freedom, as if that's more important than something like this. Who really gives a rip which party you uh, voted for? Who really gives a rip if you carry a gun or you don't carry a gun? What I think God does care about is what we do with our sexual purity. That's why it's a matter of life and death to be engaged in a loving and honest community.
We need more people who have voices who can courageously speak into our lives. The bottom line here is it's too easy to listen to empty deception and then wonder later why I'm not living in victory. So the question is, are you living or listening to empty deception? Now, in conclusion, I want to say those questions are not designed to get me off the hook. So if you're sitting here and you think these questions are designed to get you off the hook, you missed the point and you're not seeing the cross. These questions are not designed to get me off the hook. They're not designed to find a way to justify my sinfulness. They're not designed to exploit the gray spaces. They're not designed to put stars on my chart. They're designed to prove to me over and over and over again that I am guilty. I'm unable to obey this perfectly. That's why I lost sleep last night. Because I know as I come in to preach this sermon, I've not obeyed this perfectly. And I cannot. I'm weak. I'm limp. I'm broken. These questions, this sermon is designed to lead me to authentic confession and godly repentance. Not designed to leave me in the darkness of my sin. This sermon is designed to expose my sin to the light where the darkness goes to die. The sermon is designed to lead me to the cross of Christ. A hill. A broken and bloody man on a cross who didn't deserve to get broken or bloodied. I deserve that. I deserve that. If you're a follower of Christ, if you can say that with me, I deserve that. Take a deep breath and just let it out and say, man, I'm a beloved child of God. Our passage tells us right here that Jesus loved you before you loved him and he gave himself as a fragrant, catch that word, fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You and I must rest in the truth of who we are. My identity is not dictated by my obedience. Listen, my identity is not dictated by my obedience. My identity dictates my obedience. Christ's obedience on my behalf empowers my obedience to him. The fragrance of Christ's offering and sacrifice affects all of my senses. I hope it's affecting yours too. The smell of his death, it provokes my heart to broken repentance. The sight of him hanging on that cross provokes grief over my sin, deep grief over my sin. Not just, I'm sorry I got caught. Grief. I hear his word, I'm awakened to live in holiness. The taste of my sin becomes bitter when I feel the reality of his victory over Satan, sin, and death. All of those senses trigger my appetite for more and more of him. I begin to crave his life-giving presence more than anything else. And in his presence, what happens is I experience a satisfaction that is pleasing to my senses. But there are many things in this world that are pleasing to my senses. God created you and I as sensory beings. He gave us a sense of smell. And the sense of sight, and the sense of hearing, the sense of taste, and the sense of feeling. And when something smells good, looks good, sounds good, tastes good, and feels good all at the same time, what happens? We become what? Intoxicated. What would it be like to be so intoxicated by the presence 
of the, of the Lord to be so intoxicated by Christ that no other intoxication could compete. What we experienced this morning in worship, I think, would be a great reminder of what that can be like in the physical for us. That that kind of intoxication in God's presence could happen daily for you and I if we would but seek it. God created us with appetites. Those appetites get stirred up when our senses get triggered. And when those appetites don't get satisfied, then our cravings become more intense. So, so are your cravings for Christ becoming more intense? Or are they waning? When our cravings become more intense, we can be assured that danger is lying around the corner to cause mass destruction in our lives. The world we live in is constantly, constantly, constantly offering us up a platter full of things that will overload our senses and lead us into more destruction and darkness. And that's the importance of this message. We need to understand that our senses trigger our appetites. Our appetites stir up our cravings. And if our cravings go unchecked, then the consequences are severe. If this picture of Christ as a fragrant offering has affected your senses today, then all of your senses will trigger your appetite for more of him. That's what you'll leave here wanting. More of him. Less of everything else I filled my life with. You'll begin to crave his life-giving presence more than anything else. Then what will happen is that in his presence you will experience a satisfaction that is what? Pleasing. Pleasing. Christ is your fragrant offering. The question is, is, can you smell that? Because in the Old Testament temple, you would be able to smell it when you walked into church because it was burning. Can you smell it? Can you see him on the cross? Can you hear his word to you today? Can you taste his goodness towards you? Picture your worst sin right now. It loves you. You trust in him, you're his. Your sin does not change that, but his cross changes you. The question finally is, what do you feel right now? Because that's all of the senses. Let's pray. (coughs) Father, Father, we beg you to come in our closing moments and to continue doing the work that not one of us in this room is able to do. And that work, we pray, O oh God, would be that you would draw us to you and help us to rest our weary, sinful, and broken and weak selves at the foot of your cross where your blood was poured out and your broken body was torn in two. Help us to relish in that. Help every one of our senses to be affected by that as we close. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.